Good morning, <laughs> and good morning to those who are listening on the WhatsApp group. We're continuing with our sermon series on the topic of spiritual disciplines, habits for wholeness. And today I'd like us, as you may have guessed, to look at the spiritual discipline of evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with others. So, so far in our series, we've dealt with these uh, various spiritual disciplines in a fairly topical way. Uh, so, for example, we've taken the topic of fasting and then looked at various Bible verses that speak to that topic. I'd like to do something slightly different today, though. And, and instead of looking at everything the Bible says about evangelism, rather just to look at one narrative account of an evangelistic encounter and see what that teaches us about reaching out to others. I'm also going to send you a link to the Alpha course, Why and How Should I Tell Others? And that video will give you a more systematic treatment of the discipline of evangelism, as well as give you some more inspiration and practical advice. And if you're not on the church WhatsApp group, then simply go to YouTube and search for the Alpha course, uh, why and how should I tell others? It's a really helpful video. So the, evan the, the evangelistic encounter that we're going to look at today comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. So if you've got a Bible, have a look at chap Acts chapter 8 and from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus 
and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's word. Now, usually when I preach through a passage of scripture, I try to have a clear structure and outline with headings and subheadings. I tried to do that with this passage, but because it's a narrative, it doesn't really lend itself to that. And so all I wanted to do today is go through the account again and draw out some principles that I think are important for us as we try to reach out to others with the good news about Jesus. In order to fully understand this account, it's probably helpful to understand some of the background to the passage. And so in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 7, we read about the death of the very first Christian martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. He was one of the church's first deacons uh, in charge of the early church's feeding scheme. But he was also a man who was a very good preacher. Uh, And he preaches throughout Jerusalem, and eventually he's arrested by some of the Jewish people. He's brought before the Jewish council, and as he's testifying to his faith in Jesus Christ, they become so angry with him that they drag him outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they stone him to death. And we read at the beginning of chapter 8 that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So at the beginning of this chapter then we read how the gospel begins to spread out. We read how the Jewish authorities desperately try to stamp out Christianity. But wherever they stamp, the sparks fly And little spot fires break out all over the region. Wherever they go, they gossip the gospel until Christianity spreads out throughout the known world of that time. And it's so interesting then that Jesus' words to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 are coming true. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But if we were to ask the question, why does this revival take place? What caused all of this church growth? growth? Uh, The answer is quite surprising. It's persecution. That's probably not something that we've kind of factored into our own church growth strategy. But so often it is that when persecution breaks out against the church, the church thrives. And here again, then, we see the sovereignty of God in that he's able to take the very worst of situations and turn them to his honor and glory. He's so in control of evil that he's able to take evil and use it against itself to accomplish his good purpose. Stephen is martyred, and yet the church thrives. The African theologian Tertullian, writing around 190 AD, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I wonder if you notice what was happening, though, in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Jesus had called his disciples to go out and to be his witnesses, and yet what were they doing? They were all in Jerusalem. 
They were enjoying great times of prayer. They were enjoying great times of fellowship, great times of worship, even great times of growth. There were great times together as a fellowship. But that's not what it's all about. Jesus had called them to go out. And here at the beginning of chapter 8, we read how he has to gently and yet lovingly and firmly push them out through persecution. And you see, left to our own devices, we too will sit back and enjoy the preaching and the teaching and the prayer and the worship and the fellowship. But that's not what it's all about. The church is the only organization in the world that exists to serve the needs of those who are not its members. And Jesus never said, sit back and wait for the world to come to you. Create a place that is comfortable and attractive with slick and professional preaching and worship so that people will be attractive and come along. No, he said, go. And as you go, make disciples of all nations. The pastor and theologian John Stott once said, in the last resort, we engage in evangelism today not because we want to, or because we choose to, or because we like to, but because we've been told to. Philip then is one of those who is scattered, and he goes down to a city in Samaria, and he preaches the gospel there. Just to say that this is not Philip the disciple, this is another Philip that we read of in the book of Acts. Uh, he is one of the seven who, like Stephen, were elected to head up the early church's feeding scheme. And like Stephen, he too is a preacher, an evangelist. Uh, Luke tells us this from verse 5 of chapter 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Notice a couple of things about this man Philip then that we read about even before his encounter with this Ethiopian man. Firstly, wherever Philip is, he's preaching the gospel. Here in verse 5, we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. In the middle of the chapter, verse 35, we read how he met this man from Ethiopia and told him the good news about Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 40, we read, Philip appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. No matter where Philip is, he's telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. And secondly, we see something about Philip's courage here too. Philip begins by preaching the gospel in a city in Samaria. It's hard for us, as one Bible commentator says, to conceive the boldness of the step that Philip took in preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Because Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. You may remember that the Samaritans were half-Jews. 
When the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they took all of the Israelites back to Assyria. Uh, they left some of the Israelites in the capital city called Samaria, and they also brought in some new peoples from other lands that they'd conquered. And this group in Samaria then became a mixed race, half Jews, half Gentiles. When the Jews from uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, after their exile in Babylon, when they return to the land, when they want to start building the temple, these half-Jews, the Samaritans, come along and say, we want to be with you, we want to worship with you, we want to build the temple. And they're told in no uncertain terms that they are uh, to be rejected, uh, they are half-Jews, they've lost their racial purity, they can have nothing to do with the true Jews in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans turn against their Jewish relatives and they go off and they build a rival, a rival temple rather on Mount Gerizim. And their bitter hatred and animosity continued right up until the time of Jesus. Remember Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan. It was a shocking story to his Jewish hearers because the only good Samaritan that they could see was a dead Samaritan. And remember when James and John, uh, the, the, there's that Samaritan village that won't allow Jesus to come into the village, and James and John say to Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy this village? To which Jesus replies, no, we will not bring down fire from heaven on this village. Jews and Samaritans hated one another, and yet Philip doesn't let a little thing like that stand in his way. He's prepared to preach the good news about Jesus, even to people who traditionally would have been his enemies. Philip goes to this town in Samaria. He preaches the gospel. A great revival breaks out, and then in the middle of the city-wide revival, Philip suddenly receives a very strange command from God. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I find it fascinating that an angel comes to Philip and asks Philip to go out into the desert to meet with someone. One might, not, one might wonder, well, why doesn't the angel just go down to the desert road? Philip is in fact busy, and surely it would have had a far greater effect on this man uh, if an angel had appeared to him rather than Philip. But that's not God's plan. God could use angels to share the good news of Jesus Christ, but he's chosen you. And me. God took a great risk in the Garden of Eden when he said to man, you're free to choose to obey or disobey me. He took a great risk in sending his son down to earth, knowing that we would reject him and crucify him. But to me, one of the greatest and most frightening risks that God takes is the one of taking the good news of the kingdom and placing it into our hands. There's always the risk that we won't share the gospel, always the risk that we'll forget our mission, always the risk that we'll misrepresent God. But God gives this task to weak people like Philip, like me, like you. Philip must have been astounded by this command from God. But Lord, I'm in the middle of this fruitful ministry. There's a revival going on. There are people who need following up. Uh, we've still got three more evening meetings planned. There's no one out in the desert. That's why it's called a desert. 
But despite whatever misgivings Philip must have had, we read in verse 27, so he started out. Here's something else that I see in Philip's life. Remember when Jesus spoke about prayer and fasting and giving in the Sermon on the Mount? In each case, he said, don't do those things in front of others to be seen by them. And here we see something similar in the life of Philip when it comes to evangelism. Philip is prepared to serve God in front of others where everyone can see him, but he is also prepared to serve God even when his service won't necessarily be seen by anyone else at all. Philip is asked by God to leave a thriving, growing, exciting public ministry and go out into the desert where no one will see what he does except God. John Wesley the founder of the Methodist movement, once prayed this prayer. It's still used in covenant renewal services within the Methodist church. He prayed, Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you, or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Philip was prepared to be employed by God or seemingly laid aside for God. It didn't matter to him whether he was seen to be doing evangelism or not. And what about you? And what about me? Somebody has said that the greatest ability is availability. And are we able to say to God today, I'm available. Lord, I don't know how to witness to other people. I don't know how to speak to that member of my family. I don't know how to speak to that person at work. But I'm available. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, Whatever you want me to be, Lord, I'm willing. Well, as Philip stands out there in the desert, uh, looking right and left and up and down, he sees a chariot in the distance. Uh, we often picture this chariot as something out of Ben-Hur or Asterix and Obelix, you know, drawn by horses, traveling along at breakneck speed. It was probably an open chariot being pulled by two oxen with enough room for the driver, uh, the Ethiopian, and another passenger. And as, as the chariot gets closer, Philip can see from the man's expensive clothes and from the fact that he owns his own personal copy of the scroll of Isaiah that he is a very wealthy man. Judging by the retinue of people attending him, Philip knows that he is an important official. In fact, he is none other than the Sudanese minister of finance. Uh, our translation says Ethiopia, but if you look at the footnote, you'll see that the Bible is referring to a much a bigger kingdom here. Uh, probably this man is from the southern part of Sudan. And notice something else important here. This man is as different from Philip as different can be. He's got a different economic and social status. Philip is a common or garden Jewish man from the lower social ranks, whereas this man is a top government official. He has a different ethnic background. 
Philip is Jewish, whereas this man is a black African. He's even different sexually. This man is a eunuch. In those days, top government officials who had access to the queen or the harem were usually castrated as a condition of their employment. So this man has paid a a huge price for his high position. And yet Philip is prepared to break through all of those barriers in order to share the gospel. Philip doesn't define this man in terms of his race or his position or his wealth or his sexuality. He sees him as a person who needs Jesus. And folk, a great barrier is taken away from us in evangelism when we start to see people around us, everybody, as people who need Jesus. And again, we see something of Philip's courage here. It wouldn't have been at all natural or even proper for Philip to speak to this high-ranking government official. Common people wouldn't ordinarily approach officials like this. It would be as if Cyril Ramaphosa's motorcade is going through the city of Cape Town and he gets stuck at a traffic light and one of those window washers pokes his head in the window to have a quick conversation. That, in effect, is what Philip is told to do. And so he needs prompting in verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And this is an interesting question. How did Philip know what the Spirit was telling him to do? We know that the Holy Spirit speaks primarily to us through the Scriptures, which he has breathed into being. But Philip didn't have time to quickly open his Bible and get a word from the Lord on this. Clearly, this is some other kind of speaking. I don't think that in this case it was an audible voice from God, although some people have experienced that. I suspect that it was what many of us believers have experienced, that inner sense, that inner prompting of God speaking to us. When we're first introduced to Philip and the other disciples, or the other deacons rather, in Acts chapter 6, we're told that they're men of wisdom who were full of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't mean so much that they had more of the Holy Spirit as much as it means that the Holy Spirit had more of them. They were men who listened to Jesus' voice through his Spirit and obeyed what he said. Philip was someone who didn't simply have Christ at the circumference of his life as a guide, but rather had him at the very center of his life, as Lord and Master. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaks about keeping in step with the Spirit. It means listening to the Holy Spirit through his word, through these inner promptings, and then obeying what he says. And I think that what will help us in the area of evangelism, as well as help us in many areas of our Christian life, is just to spend some time alone with God each morning. Just 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, reading his word and praying. Do that at the beginning of the day, before all the other voices of the day are up. And then throughout the day, listen for the voice that we heard in the quiet of the early morning and do what he says. Perhaps you'll hear an inner prompting to phone someone or message someone. Or visit with someone. Maybe you'll be prompted to offer to pray for someone. 
One Bible commentator wisely says, Only those who, like Philip, are fully surrendered to the Lord, who is the Spirit, can identify with this kind of lifestyle. The dangers of self-delusion here are real, but not insurmountable to such a Lord. In other words, if my heart's desire is to love and serve Jesus, he will lead me in this area of listening to him. Well, despite whatever uncertainty or hesitancy Philip may have felt, he obeys what the Spirit says to him. He goes up to the chariot and he discovers something very remarkable. He finds that God has been there ahead of him. God may have been working in Philip's life, but he has been working in the life of this African man as well. When Philip gets near the chariot, he hears this man reading from Isaiah 53. In those days, you read aloud, and Philip thus hears this man reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. It's a passage of scripture that foretells the trial and the execution of Jesus. Can you think of any passage of scripture from which to speak about Jesus? I can't think of a clearer passage in the Old Testament. And Philip seizes the opportunity. He doesn't need any prompting now. Philip says to the man, do you understand what you are reading? And this man replies, how can I? unless someone explains it to me. And he invites Philip up into his chariot. And here's a great encouragement to those of us who may be fearful about sharing our faith with others. We're afraid of what people might say, afraid of what kind of reception we'll get, but we need to remember that God is there ahead of us. God has been at work in the life of this Ethiopian man for decades before Philip arrived on the scene. This man has come from southern Sudan to the temple in Jerusalem because he is searching for God. Maybe he's been attracted to the Jewish faith since his childhood, and he's traveled for a thousand kilometers to come to Jerusalem looking for some answers. It would have taken him about five months to reach Jerusalem. And when he gets to the temple, he discovers that he's not allowed in. Not because he's a Gentile, because there was a court for the Gentiles, but rather because he's a eunuch. The law was very clear that those kinds of people couldn't come near to worship God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Being a eunuch was seen to be a mutilation of nature and of God's design for creation. But there's a very interesting passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 56, that says that when the Messiah comes, that old law will fall away. Everyone will be able to come to God. Let let me read to you what Isaiah says. God says through Isaiah, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." It's quite possible then that someone in Jerusalem shared this with this Ethiopian eunuch. And so he's gone out and he's bought himself a copy of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading it on his way home to find out what God has to say about eunuchs. And now he comes to this passage and he says to Philip, tell me, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Long before Philip came on the scene, God was at work in this man's life. Eugene Peterson writes this in one of his pastoral books. He's he's writing to pastors about their interactions with congregation members. But what he says applies just as much to our interactions with everyone around us, particularly those who are yet to be Christians. He writes this. What has God been doing with this person before he or she showed up in my study? What messages have been received, distorted, missed? God has been at work with this person since birth. Everything that has taken place in this life has in some way or another taken place in the context of a good creation and an intended salvation. Everything. When this person leaves my presence, the good creation and the intended salvation will remain. God's grace is in operation and will persist. My words and gestures and actions take place in the midst of a great drama about the details of which I know little or nothing. In no way does that mean that my part is unimportant or dispensable. I take with absolute seriousness whatever part I play. But I am a supporting player and not the lead. I do my very best, but in no way do I speak or act so that the person's response to me is the center stage action. God wants to meet with this person. This person wants, unfocused as the want may be, to meet with God. I must not manipulate the conversation or construe the setting so that I am perceived to be in charge or I merely delay the things of God. When we walk around the mall, when we're sat at a large family gathering and we look at the people around us, we need to gently remind ourselves, God is already at work in the life of this person. Again, that gives us confidence to step out in faith and play our part. Philip just happened to be the final link on a long chain of people, each of whom had been used by God to nudge this man closer to Christ. And that's important for us to remember as well. When we step out in faith and have the courage to share our faith, not everyone is going to make a commitment and be baptized. But as one writer points out, we simply need to make ourselves available day by day to God the Holy Spirit so that we may, in ways very often entirely unknown to ourselves,
become a link in a chain of redemption. Just to point out that the gospel does have some objective content. When this man says, what does this passage mean? Philip doesn't say to him, well, what does it mean for you? (laughs) Philip begins with that very passage of scripture and tells this man the good news about Jesus. The fact that God has created us and loves us. The fact that our sin separates us from God. The fact that what we couldn't do for ourselves, God has done for us by taking our sin upon himself in the person of his son, Jesus. The fact that if we accept Jesus' sacrifice and invite him into our lives, we are born again to a new life with him. It's important for us to understand some of the basics of our faith and then in the words of 1 Peter, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for a hope that is in us and do it with gentleness and respect. How can I understand unless someone explains to me is a cry that still is heard in our cities, our neighborhoods and families. People are looking for God. They have a deep longing for God even if they don't realize that it's him they are looking for. We have a city, we have a country, we have a world of people who are ready and waiting and who just need someone to poke their heads into their lives and say, do you understand? Can I help? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Perhaps this week we could just begin to pray for some of the individuals in our own lives. Perhaps family members who don't know our Lord and Savior. People at work that we've got contact with. And then just look for those God-given opportunities to share our faith in big and in small ways. Well, having had the gospel explained to him, this Ethiopian man is prepared to accept Christ and is prepared to undergo baptism, which is simply an outward expression of this inward reality. And we read that after the baptism, Philip, like Elijah of old, is snatched away by the Holy Spirit, but the Ethiopian continues on his way rejoicing. As one writer puts it, This man who had been excluded for so long from the temple and the inner shrine of Jerusalem was now at last included at the very center in Christ. Now at last he had answers. He had a new life. He was forgiven and newborn. He had Christ. It meant joy, inexpressible and glorious. Joy is, in fact, one of the main themes of this chapter. Uh, Wherever Philip goes, there is rejoicing. In verse 7, we read that there is rejoicing in the city in Samaria, and now there is rejoicing out in the desert. And let me take this opportunity to ask you, have you experienced this joy for yourself? Do you know the joy of having your sin forgiven and starting a new life with Christ? And if not, what's preventing you from coming to Jesus yourself this morning? 
Let me close with a, a story. Edward Kimball was a timid, soft-spoken man who was a Sunday school teacher in a church in Boston, America. In his Sunday school class, he had a 19-year-old teenager called Dwight. Dwight was illiterate. He was uncouth. He was one of those teenagers that you do not want to have in your Sunday school class. But one afternoon, Edward Kimball went across to the shoe shop in Boston where Dwight worked, and he spoke to him about Jesus. Edward Kimball describes the encounter in his diary like this. I decided to speak to Dwight about Christ and about his soul. I started down to Holton's shoe store, and when I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy, uh, that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when they learned, might taunt Dwight and ask if I was trying to make him a good boy. While I was pondering over it, I passed the store without noticing it. Then when I found I'd gone out, then when I found I'd gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over with at once. Kimball found Dwight working in the stockroom, wrapping and shelving shoes. Kimball said he spoke to him with limping words. He later said, I never could remember just what I did say, something about Christ and his love, that was all. He admitted it was a weak appeal, but right then and there, Dwight gave his heart to Jesus. The shoe clerk, Dwight L. Moody, became an evangelist who led thousands of people to the Lord through his evangelistic campaigns in the 1800s. During a tour of England in 1879, he awakened evangelistic zeal in the heart of Frederick B. Meyer, who was a pastor of a small church. F.B. Meyer, in turn, on a visit to America uh, at a college campus, brought to Christ a student called J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman got involved in the Young Men's Christian Association and employed a former baseball player, Billy Sunday, to do evangelistic work. Billy Sunday led a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was so successful that, that a group of local men decided to plan another evangelistic campaign the following year, bringing Mordecai Ham to town to preach. During Mordecai Ham's campaign, a young man called Billy Graham heard the gospel and yielded his life to Christ. You, you may have heard of the great names like Dwight L. Moody, the hundreds of thousands of people who came to Christ under his ministry, or of Billy Graham and the hundreds of thousands of people who came to Christ. You probably haven't ever heard the name Edward Kimball, and yet the ripples of that man's life are still spreading out today, all because he was bold enough to poke his head into the life of a young teenager and make a difference in just one person's life. And may God grant that in this week ahead, we would be available to God. Just say, Lord, I'm available. That we'd be mindful of the fact that we've been commissioned to share the good news that we've received. That we would simply keep in step with the Spirit, listening for His voice, obeying His promptings, that we would be watchful and prayerful. And then that we would step out in courage and boldness, knowing that God has gone ahead of us and is already at work in the lives of each person 
that we come into contact with during this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this astounding passage of Scripture and how you brought the gospel to Africa in the most amazing way. Lord, thank you for the assurance and reassurance this passage gives us that when we step out in faith, when we obey your voice, that things do happen. Maybe we won't see something as dramatic as this in our own lives, but one day in eternity we will. We will see the difference that an SMS made or an invitation to church or just a word shared out of our own personal testimony. We ask, please, that in this week that lies ahead, you would keep us faithful in prayer, praying for people around us, and then that you'd keep us alert and awake to the various opportunities that we might have to share to a dark and dying world the good news about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.